Thank you, Connie. That was beautiful. Good morning, Unity Spiritual Center in the Rockies. How are you guys? Glad to have you here. We're going to continue talking about Thich Nhat Hanh this morning. And if you weren't here last week, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version so you can understand a little bit about who this teacher is. So Thich Nhat Hanh was born in Vietnam. And when he was seven years old, he saw the Buddha on a cover of a magazine. And he saw the peaceful look on his face. And that convinced him that he wanted to be a monk. He wanted that level of peace. So at a very, very young age, he had a calling. By 16 years old, he had joined a monastery. His parents were a little bit reluctant to have him do that because the life of a monk is not an easy life. But by 16 years old, they were convinced that he was called to it because he hadn't given up his idea. And he joined the monastery and he, um, he went through all of his training. And at the completion of his training, he began an organization called Youth for Social Services. And Youth for Social, Social Services was an organization of young people, 10,000 young people that he brought into the fold who worked throughout Vietnam repairing homes that had been bombed and helping people who were suffering as a result of the circumstances in Vietnam at the time. And he was not a very popular guy despite his really good work because he refused to make any distinction about who he helped. He wouldn't pick sides. He didn't care if you were North Vietnamese or South Vietnamese. He didn't care where you came from or what side of the issues you stood on. The people that he trained went out into the community to help, to relieve suffering. And it didn't matter who they helped as long as they helped. And that made him an unpopular guy. So in the early 60s, he was invited to come to Princeton and teach. And while he was at Princeton, he wrote a letter to Martin Luther King Jr. He wrote a letter inviting him to look at the circumstances in Vietnam, to speak out about what was going on, and uh, nothing happened. And in 1967, he had the opportunity to sit for 45 minutes with Martin Luther King Jr. and have a conversation. And during that time, he had such an impact that Martin Luther King stepped out of the meeting called a press conference, and spoke to the press about the circumstances, spoke about, against uh, U.S. involvement in what was going on in Vietnam. It's a very powerful guy, very influential man. He's seen as one of the top two Buddhist teachers in the world, the, the other being the Dalai Lama, and one of the top seven spiritual teachers of all time, really by whoever the powers are that make those kinds of decisions. Really, really influential guy. So I just like for you to hear him. So let's watch this video. When you look at uh, a cloud, uh, you think that the cloud as a being. And later on, when the cloud becomes the rain, you don't see the cloud anymore. And you say the cloud is not there. And you're there. You describe the cloud as non-being. But uh, if you look deeply, you can see the cloud in the rain. Uh, and that is why uh, it's impossible for a cloud to die. 
A cloud can become uh, rain, or snow, or ice, but a cloud cannot become nothing. And that is why the notion of death cannot be applied to reality. There is uh, a transformation, there is a continuation, but you cannot say that there is death, because uh, in your mind, to die means from something, you suddenly become nothing. Uh, from someone, you suddenly become no one. And so the notion of death cannot apply to reality, whether to a cloud or to a human being. Uh, the Buddha did not die. The Buddha only continued uh, by his Sangha, by his Dharma. And you can touch the Buddha in the here and the now. And that is why ideas like uh, uh, being born, uh, dying, coming and going, uh, being and non-being, uh, should be removed right, by the practice of looking deeply. And when you can remove these notions, uh, you are free and you have non-fear. of the young man who was born in Kapilavastu, who practiced um, many years in the forest and who went around India to give the teaching. But that is uh, only a portion of the Buddha, because uh, the moment when the Buddha began to uh, build a Sangha, he began to transfer himself to the Sangha, and many disciples uh, monastic like uh, lay, they continue the Buddha. And you have to see the Buddha in the Sangha. You have to be, to be able to see the Buddha in the Dharma. And if you have not seen the Dharma and the Sangha, you have not seen the Buddha. And the Dharma is available in the here and the now. The Sangha is also available in the here and the now. You do not have to go to India in order to see the Buddha. If we uh, believe that Buddha is a god that can bestow on us um, the things we want, uh, then, and then that is not the Buddha. The Buddha is a human being who has uh, a deep capacity of understanding and of loving. And having Mah uh, Mahakaruna, uh, great uh, compassion, Mahamaitri, um, great um, love, uh, Mahaprasna, great uh, understanding, he can perform miracles. Uh, understanding people is a miracle. And it is described that the Buddha is one who understands the world well. Lokavidu, it means uh, understanding the world. And um, because he understands the world deeply, and that is why he can offer the kind of teaching that can help heal uh, the world. And um, uh, the miracle of understanding and the miracle of uh, teaching are very important miracles that the Buddha can perform. Uh, when you give a teaching that can transform people who, who hear you, that is a miracle. The Buddha described it as the greatest miracles of all miracles. And there are, there are disciples of the Buddha who were capable of doing that during the time of the Buddha. They 
could already continue the Buddha in the time of the Buddha. And in our time, there are those of us who can do the same by their practice, by their teaching. Uh, they can uh, heal people, they can help people liberate uh, themselves from their suffering. So the miracle continues. So how many of you understood every word? <laughs> it's not easy, is it? It's not easy to understand what he's saying. A little, probably a little harder because there were no pictures of him speaking. There was no, no visual of him you were watching, visual of flowers. But I wanted you to have an opportunity to hear who we're talking about. We're not talking about a man who has big personality. We're not talking about a man who has a booming voice, who the voice of God comes through him. We're talking about one of those people that when you stand in their presence, you're washed over with a wave of calm. That there is something about who he is and how he lives that speaks more boldly even than the words that he shares. And his teachings, as you spend time studying, his teachings are really very simple and very profound. And as I share them with you, I'm sure you'll re you will have heard them before. This will not be the first time, maybe some new wording. But what he has done is spent his life teaching people to come to peace to discipline themselves and to control their thoughts and their direction in life in such a way that he has impacted the entire world. Martin Luther King uh, nominated this man for a Nobel Peace Prize. Really quite a phenomenal individual. And his teachings are very simple. So let's talk about fear because he taught a lot about fear. And you can imagine that growing up in a place like Vietnam, especially during wartime, would certainly instill a certain amount of fear, wouldn't it? That he would have to overcome fear on his own to be able to do the work that he did, especially since he was in a hostile environment and he wasn't really cared for by people on either side. In fact, he was exiled from his country in 1973 and he wasn't allowed to go back until 2005. That's a long time to be away from what is familiar to you. And there are lots of fears that come up in traveling the rest of the world and finding out how people are and what's safe and what isn't safe. So let's talk about fear. Anybody in here ever had any? So there are a lot of different kinds of fear, aren't there? There's fear that comes up when we feel pain. Any kind of physical pain will throw us immediately into fear and that's healthy, isn't it? Because it tells us we need to do something. It's instinctual fear that, that touches our need for survival. And that fear comes up because we want to stay on the planet. Something's hurting us. We want to fix it. We want to address it right away. And we're wired for that. If you feel pain and you don't have some kind of fear associated with it, some kind of sense that you need to take care of yourself, that's not healthy. There are other kinds of fear. There's fear that is experiential. So for example, 
If you were swimming in a lake as a young child and you almost drowned, you might find yourself feeling afraid every time you approach a body of water. That's an experiential fear, isn't it, that you learned. There's also fear that you were taught. So, for example, if you have a reaction to a certain kind of person. In my house, I know that homelessness, that seeing people who are homeless was something that we were taught to be afraid of. We were taught in my parents' great effort to do the best they could for us, to make us safe, that if someone was homeless, they ought to, there were enough jobs in the country, they ought to be able to get a job. And that may not be, may not have been, and, and certainly isn't the same as it is today. But my parents taught us that because they wanted us to be safe. What were you taught because your family, the people who loved you, wanted you to be safe? When do you cross the street because of who's walking down the other side? What are the things that you learned? Those are taught fears. You have some control over whether you choose to stay with them or not, don't you? There's also another kind of fear that's important to address, and that's imagined fear. So how many of you remember being a small child and maybe being with a babysitter while your parents went out and finding yourself in tears because you were imagining that something happened to them? It's a very natural thing. Actually, a lot of children do that. Imagine having lost a parent. Perhaps you've imagined something that could happen. Your kids go to a concert on the heels of what's happened at concerts in our country. Perhaps you've begun to imagine what could happen because your kids are there, your grandkids. There are lots of things that we can imagine into if we want to make ourselves afraid, right? We have control over that. There's the fear that comes from something you choose to expose yourself to. Maybe you're a horror movie fan. Is that real fear when you're watching that movie and you jump? Is it real? Your body thinks it is. Your logic knows that whatever that boogeyman is, he's really not coming out of the TV at you. Your logic knows that, but your body has a fear response. And when you have a fear response, all of the oxygenated blood in your body starts being moved out to your fingers and toes, to your outer extremities. Do you know why? Because of fight or flight response. So you can have strength in your arms to fight, or you can have strength in your legs to run like the Dickens. So your body naturally has a response. Whether you imagine fear, you in, intentionally expose yourself to fear, whether you have an experiential response or you have a real pain experience, response. Your body has the same fear reaction biologically. And when that happens, when you go to fight or flight, you go to reptilian brain and the oxygenated blood gets pulled away from the thought processes. So Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings invite you to address that process, that natural biology what you're invited to do first is breathe. 
Simplest tool in the world, isn't it? We all have the capacity. We do it lots and lots of times every day. But it's the last thing that we think about. When we're in fear, our breath becomes shallow. So during the meditation, I invited you to use Thich Nhat Hanh's words, which are, I breathe in and I calm. I breathe out and I smile. You could say, I breathe in and I calm. I breathe out and I find safety. I breathe in and I calm. I breathe out and I'm centered. Whatever the words are that work for you, but the point is to breathe, to follow the breath. This is such a simple thing. But you heard the voice of the master, didn't you? This voice that speaks in words that are sometimes difficult to understand. This voice that speaks softly and gently. So why is it that he's had the impact he has on the entire world? Because these teachings are really important. They're important no matter what age you are, no matter what spiritual experience you are, no matter what your life history is. These are tools you can use to bring yourself to a state of calm when you're in fear. And that matters in our world. It matters deeply in the world we share. So the second thing he says is once you have gone into your breath and you've brought yourself to a centered space, then remember the process of interbeing. So we talked a little bit about that last week. I'm going to just go through it real quick again. Imagine that you are at the table having a salad. Imagine one leaf in that salad. If you look deeply in the way that Thich Nhat Hanh invites us to look, then you look at that leaf of lettuce and you see that at one point it was a seed and that the seed required fertile soil and that the seed interacted with rain and water in order to grow, that the seed interacted with the sun in order to produce that leaf of lettuce, that as it grew, it was cared for and tended, that there were insects who benefited it and insects that did not, that there were people who came and not only tended and cultivated that one leaf of lettuce, but also harvested it, that it was harvested and carried probably to a grocery store in a truck, that many hands worked together to create. And then altogether new hands drove to the grocery store where things were unloaded by human hands and unpacked and made beautiful for you, misted and cared for in the way the grocery store does. And then you went, or someone in your household, purchased that lettuce, brought it home, probably washed it again, prepared a meal with love. And all of that had to happen to have you enjoy that one taste. It's very complex, isn't it? Life is a series of interbeings. Interactions, interbeings, interconnections. The most simple aspect of life requires many, many components to take place. 
So our invitation in fear is to breathe and look deeply. What is, what is it that I'm really seeing? What does it reflect? What do all of these things that I'm seeing reflect back to me? We often, when we're in fear, feel isolated. And this process helps us to remember we're connected in many, many, many ways. It's not by accident that we're here. We are connected. And then finally, the third step he teaches is mindfulness and concentration. And Thich Nhat Hanh has written over 100 books. If you spend time in his books reading, you'll see those words, that phrase, over and over and over. Mindfulness and concentration. Mindfulness and concentration. Mindfulness and concentration is a reminder that you are in charge in here. This physical vehicle that you travel in is at your direction. You are not subject to your thoughts. You are the controller of your thoughts. So when we have a spark of fear, what usually happens is that we go to the worst possible case, don't we? And the invitation is there not to travel spiral down, but instead to look at whether your belief, first of all, is true. Is this true what I'm afraid of? Is it in front of me and impending? Is there something that I should be doing right now? How do I respond to this? How do I want to think about it? This is incredibly important when we're talking about being afraid of people. Because oftentimes our fear of people is associated with some previous experience. And who here likes to be judged through the lens of what somebody else did? None of us. We want to be seen for who we are as individuals and, and in our unique circumstances, don't we? So when we're mindful and we concentrate, we have the ability to choose how we will look at people, how we will look at things that are happening. These are really simple steps. Like I said, breathe. Remember you're connected to everything. If you need to look at how you're connected and be mindful of your thoughts. Concentrate. Choose who you're going to be in the moment. This is how we deal with fear. Very simple, and yet these are tools that we miss when we're afraid, aren't they? The most simple tool you have with you in your toolbox everywhere you go is the capacity to breathe. To breathe, to remember that you are one with all things, and to be mindful about what you're projecting, what you're seeing, what you're thinking, and open to greater compassion through that mindfulness. Thich Nhat Hanh is a master because he brings to us the things that are so true that we have to listen. We have to be reminded. We have to remember again because they're life-changing. I have some quotes for you. These are all by the master. The first is this. He says, I am life without boundaries. The decaying of this body does not mean the end of me. I am not limited to this body. 
The second one addresses anger, and we could replace this word with fear. Anger and fear are very closely connected. When we get angry, we suffer. If you really understand that, you also will be able to understand that when the other person is angry, it it means that she is suffering. When someone insults you or behaves violently toward you, you have to be intelligent enough to see that the person suffers from his own violence and anger. But we tend to forget. We think that we are the only one that suffers and the other person is our oppressor. This is enough to make anger arise and to strengthen our desire to punish. We want to punish the other person because we suffer. Then we have anger in us. We have violence in us, just as they do. When we see that our suffering and anger are no different from their suffering and anger, we will behave more compassionately. And this last one is my, one of my very favorite teachings. <clears throat> and again, he uses the word anger, which you could replace with fear if you chose to. If your house is on fire, the most urgent thing to do is go back and try and put out the fire, not to run after the person you believe to be the arsonist. If you run after the person you suspect has burned your house, your house will burn down while you are chasing him or her. That is not wise. You must go back and put out the fire. So when you're angry, if you continue to interact with or argue with the other person, if you try to punish her, you are acting exactly like someone who runs after the arsonist while everything goes up in flames. Anger is like a howling baby suffering and crying. The baby needs his mother to embrace him. You are the mother for your baby, your anger. The moment you begin to practice breathing mindfully in and out, you have the energy of a mother to cradle and embrace the baby. Just embracing your anger, just breathing in and out, that is good enough. The baby will feel relief right away. Breathing in, I am calm, breathing out, I smile.